Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, April 20th, 2020. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, paging Farmville. Facebook takes another stab at owning mobile gaming. Rupert Murdoch's long-standing wish is granted. Dropbox has long-standing doubts about its erstwhile partner, Zoom. More data on the health of tech investing. And the first reviews of the iPad as a laptop are mixed. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Facebook is launching a dedicated app for gaming which will let users create and watch live game streams. It's called the Facebook Gaming App, and it's available right now on Android, although at the time of this writing, it's not exactly clear to me yet if Apple has approved it for iOS. Quoting the New York Times, The free app caps several years of investment at Facebook, which said more than 700 million of its 2.5 billion monthly users already engage with gaming content. The app is designed largely for creating and watching live gameplay, a fast-growing online sector where Facebook is battling Amazon's Twitch, Google's YouTube, and Microsoft's Mixer services. Although Facebook was a top gaming platform a decade ago during the Farmville era, the company hasn't been a dominant force in recent years. In the game streaming market, Facebook is number three in total hours watched behind YouTube and Twitch, according to Streamlabs. Viewers currently watch Facebook game streaming with the core Facebook app and on the new app in the developing markets where it's already available. The new app includes casual games and access to gaming communities, but its fate will depend largely on how successfully it entices people to watch and create live game streams. A function called Go Live lets users upload streams of other mobile games on the same device by pressing just a few buttons. Those streams can then be shared to someone's personal Facebook page, potentially making it much easier for people to become amateur streamers. By contrast, streaming mobile games on Twitch, the market leader, generally requires people to install more complicated third-party programs or connect their mobile device to a computer. There are a lot of people who listen to music and say, I can imagine myself being a musician, said Vivek Sharma, Facebook's vice president for gaming. People are watching streams and they're like, I want to be a streamer. And with Go Live, it's literally just a few clicks and then live. You're a streamer, end quote. Australia has ordered a mandatory code of conduct requiring platforms like Google and Facebook to pay media businesses when they use their news content. Quoting ABC in Australia, The mandatory code will cover issues including the sharing of data, ranking of news content online, and the sharing of revenue generated from news. It will be enforced through penalties and sanctions and will include a binding dispute resolution process. Negotiations over a voluntary code were expected to run until November. However, the coronavirus crisis has prompted the government to direct the ACCC to cease those efforts and begin work on a mandatory code. Communications Minister Paul Fletcher said COVID-19 has exacerbated financial woes within the media sector. Quote, Media companies are facing significant financial pressure, and COVID-19 has led to a sharp downturn in advertising revenue across the whole sector. 
Digital platforms need to do more to improve the transparency of their operations for news media providers, as they have a significant impact on the capacity of news media organizations to build and maintain an audience and derive resources from the media content they produce, end quote. I'm not saying this is related, but I do find it ironic in the Alanis Morissette sense of that word that Rupert Murdoch has been trying to get internet platforms to pay up for the news they use for 15 years now. And now, back in his home country, his wish is finally getting granted. Sources are telling the New York Times that some folks knew early on that Zoom was going to have all of those security headaches that we've seen of late. In fact, Zoom's erstwhile business partner Dropbox paid private hackers to find bugs in Zoom's code and then pressed Zoom to fix them, according to the sources. Quote, As part of a novel security assessment program for its vendors and partners, Dropbox in 2018 began privately offering rewards to top hackers to find holes in Zoom's software code and that of a few other companies. The former Dropbox engineers said they were stunned by the volume and severity of the security flaws that hackers discovered in Zoom's code and were troubled by Zoom's slowness in fixing them. After Dropbox presented the hackers' findings from the Singapore event to Zoom Video Communications, the California company behind the video conferencing service, it took more than three months for Zoom to fix the bug, the former engineers said. Zoom patched the vulnerability only after another hacker publicized a different security flaw with the same root cause, end quote. A couple of quotes from Alex Stamos appeared in this piece about Zoom, saying that no one could have seen Zoom's problems ahead of time. You might recall that Zoom recently hired Stamos as a security advisor, so cool to see that they're getting their money's worth right away, I guess. With all of the attention around folks being stuck at home and hungry for entertainment, you'd think that a rising tide might be raising all boats, as it were. But some data from Bloomberg suggests that might not be the case. Could it be the corona crisis is not only a moment for streaming to become ascendant, but maybe also a moment to put the nail finally in linear TV's coffin once and for all? According to this piece, some linear cable TV channels are still not gaining viewers, even under lockdown. For example, ESPN and the Disney Channel saw their over-the-air, or at least over cable TV viewership, decline 62 and 37% respectively in the week of April 12th. And yes, those are both special cases because with no sports, why watch ESPN? And Disney Plus is now the natural home for most kids viewing if my household is any indication, but this could be something that we're seeing across the board. Quote, primetime viewers at the 35 largest cable channels have tumbled almost 7% in the season to date and were flat in the second week of April based on the latest data available. The virus and its impact on consumers' wallets has prompted Convergence Research, a consulting firm, to predict that more than 8% of pay TV subscribers will cancel their cable or satellite service this year. It sees 7.1 million cutting the cord in 2020, an increase from 6.36 million in 2019. The FX network, also owned by Disney, is adapting as well. It's producing original shows just for the Hulu streaming service, which is now controlled by Disney. 
Now you can watch things on FX on Hulu you can't even watch on FX, said Robert Thompson, a professor of media studies at New York's Syracuse University. The virus, he said, is, quote, accelerating an evolution already on its way, end quote. Indeed, it is sort of a mixed bag if you're trying to pick winners and losers right now. Cable news channels, for example, are scoring huge audience gains. CNN has more than doubled viewers, and Fox News programs accounted for all 35 of the most-watched primetime shows on cable last week. Although, true crime shows seem to be especially unpopular at the moment, which is something that actually I've heard anecdotally in the podcasting space as well. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines, their family group chat, their crossword puzzles, just because they're available right now or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed credible doctors and specialists. I have personally used ZocDoc to find a podiatrist when I needed one for the first time ever in my life. Go to ZocDoc.com slash techmeme and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash techmeme. ZocDoc.com slash techmeme. Follow up on the conversation Alex Willem and I had on the bonus episode this weekend. There's some new data around the investing side of the tech equation. The Q1 2020 Global VC report is out from Crunchbase News. Actually, it was out late last week. And it's projecting that venture capital investment worldwide in Q1 of 2020 was $63.8 billion, down 17% from the previous quarter, but only down 8% year over year. So all things considered, not bad. Though remember what Alex cautioned me about this Saturday, you know, 
how much of late March is in those numbers. And obviously, Q2 will be the most relevant quarter for these sorts of data and reporting. Quote, for China, we identified an accelerated slowdown in Q1 of 2020. Europe posted a slower decline, and the U.S. and Canada showed growth quarter over quarter, but less so year over year. Many deals announced in the last week of March, since shelter-in-place regulations were enacted in the U.S., Canada, and Europe, were negotiated in a very different and more bullish investment climate. In the second quarter, we do expect a more pronounced reset due to the coronavirus pandemic. Crunchbase projects 7,600 venture rounds generated in Q1 2020, down from the last quarter by 5%, and down year-over-year by 4%. Since the first quarter of 2018, total projected venture deal volume has been above 7,000 rounds per quarter, peaking at around 8,500 in the second quarter of 2019. That makes 7,600 rounds the lowest projected count in the last five quarters. Crunchbase projects that approximately $3.3 billion was invested across 4,896 deals in Q1 2020 in seed stage deals. Seed stage rounds include angel, pre-seed, seed, and a subset of rounds below a certain threshold. This represents the lowest amount invested in seed stage rounds for the past two years, with the largest drop at 27% in dollars invested quarter over quarter. Early stage deals, including Series A and Series B rounds and a mix of undisclosed venture rounds below a certain amount, project at $22.3 billion invested across 2,100 deals in the first quarter. Count and amounts are down across the board, with the most significant drag on quarter-over-quarter dollars invested down by 23%, marking the lowest recorded quarter since the fourth quarter of 2017, end quote. Although, of course, as we've discussed recently, the ability for funds themselves to raise money has largely been holding up, if down only slightly so, funds will have money to deploy this spring going into the summer when opportunity knocks, and perhaps this slowing down in seed, series A, that sort of thing, is just a bit of funds keeping their powder dry, waiting to see how things shake out. Again, listen to the weekend bonus episode for more thoughts in this regard. But... On the private equity side of things, Bloomberg is reporting that around $20 billion of tech deals in Europe have been put on hold by the pandemic. So, you know, that's a lot. The first reviews of Apple's Magic Keyboard for the iPads, they're out. And according to Dieter Bone at The Verge, the Magic Keyboard is the best way to turn an iPad into a laptop, which is what everybody has been asking for, right? Well, that's a bit of for better or worse, it turns out. First, Dieter says this, quote, After testing it over the weekend, I will tell you that it does the exact thing admirably. It's a well-made, beautiful keyboard case that's nice to type on and makes a lot of work on the iPad much more convenient, or at least familiar. It's also expensive, starting at $299 for the 11-inch version and $349 for the 12.9-inch version. An entry-level iPad, yes, a complete iPad, will run you $329 before any discounts for reference. So yes, finally, the Magic Keyboard lets you use your iPad Pro like a traditional clamshell laptop. It does exactly what it was designed to do, and it does it very well. I'm just not sure that it's the right design in the first place, end quote. Yeah, so the issues he highlights are, among other things, so you've got your iPad as a full-fledged laptop now, but it turns out that that configuration makes it actually heavier than a laptop all-in. 
the combo of iPad Pro keyboard and iPad Pro is heavier than a MacBook Air. Same 8 inches, same thickness as the 13-inch MacBook Pro, and thicker in your bag than a 13-inch MacBook Air when closed. And you've got to drop $349 on top of the iPad to get yourself to that point. So what was the point of this again? And then, well, I don't want to trigger anyone, but Dieter compares the whole setup unfavorably to the Surface Pro. Quote, look, I'm just going to make a comparison here that I know is going to annoy a bunch of people, but I think it's instructive. I have Microsoft's Surface Pro X, which has a 13-inch screen, LTE, and runs Windows on ARM. Depending on your configurations, the price of the Surface Pro X and its keyboard is roughly comparable to the 12.9-inch iPad Pro with a Magic Keyboard. There are 5,000 words I could write comparing their software ecosystem differences, but let's just talk hardware here. The screens are about the same size. The trackpads are also about the same size, but the Surface Keyboard has a function row, and it also lets you tilt up a bit but it's slightly more awkward on your lap. However, the Surface lets you tilt the screen to virtually any angle, even almost fully flat. The Surface also lets you flip the keyboard underneath so you can prop the tablet up to watch movies. When closed with the keyboard attached, the Surface is thinner. The Surface with its keyboard is lighter than the iPad with its keyboard. The Surface webcam is placed in the top center of the screen instead of off to the side. I point all of this out not to say the Surface Pro X is better, That's more of a software and ecosystem question. The Surface hardware is better suited to a wide array of laptop and tablet tasks, though, and its software is really best at being a laptop. The iPad software is great at a wide array of tablet and laptop tasks, but the Magic Keyboard hardware is really best at being a laptop. What I'm trying to say here is that hardware design isn't inevitable. Apple made choices with the iPad Pro. It chose where to put the smart connector. It chose where to put the webcam. It chose not to put a kickstand on it. It chose to design the Magic Keyboard the way that it did. All of those are rational choices, but they have real-world consequences on ergonomics. The Magic Keyboard turns the iPad into a great laptop, though one that's a little heavier and thicker than you might expect. But to me, the whole point of the iPad is that it isn't a laptop, end quote. Man, that Last Dance Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN sure is fun. I'm not sure that it's great with a capital G, not as great as that OJ documentary series that ESPN did a couple years ago was, but man, is it fun to watch. Fun to get all nostalgic for this stuff. 10 to 14-year-old me watched Bulls games religiously. I don't remember following much of the second Bulls three-peat, though, because I was in college by that point and was more into college football and beginning my love affair with football football, a.k.a. soccer. But that's kind of what has me hooked, because in a way, I'm catching up with stuff that I missed, like the whole Scottie Pippen being underpaid thing. Anyway, watch it. It's good. Makes you remember how much we're all missing as we're missing sports. And also, if you're younger than me and you missed out on this entire thing, man, get with the program. Talk to you tomorrow.